This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We're here today with another installment in the uh, Neurosurgery Program Spotlights for the 2021-22 interview season. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Mike Martin, the Program Director at Oklahoma University down in Oklahoma City. Dr. Martin, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Thanks for having me. So as we were discussing, we just wanted to take this opportunity to give our listeners, and particularly the applicants this year, kind of a more personal touch, a personal insight into the character and the culture of these programs before they uh, start applying and, and getting out there for the virtual visits this year. So, Dr. Martin, maybe you can give us just the 20,000-foot uh, view overview of your program and, and what you think Oklahoma has to offer culturally to the applicants. Sure, you bet. Uh, our program is a, a medium-sized program. We're a one-to-one match. Uh, this year we'll be taking two applicants. The unique thing about our program is we are the only training program in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we're also the only level one trauma center in the entire state of Oklahoma. Nearest to us in that regard is uh, as far away as Dallas, Texas. So we have a wide catchment area and a large population to draw from. Uh, the Some of the points about our program we are a growing department. Uh, we're in general a young department for the most part. Uh, but in the, in the neurosurgery landscape, the University of Oklahoma has been doing neurosurgery since the 1930s. And in fact, our accreditation dates back to 1949. Uh, so we've been kind of doing this for a long time, just uh, steadily continuing on and training what we think are excellent, excellent graduates. You know, as someone who I'm a kind of approaching the middle portion of residency right now, I'll tell you that a lot of the savvy applicants may balk at the idea of having the only level one trauma center in a state and immediately translate that to very busy calls and, and a constant stream of cases coming in overnight and losing sleep. But I'll tell you that trauma is a great setting for training when you're a junior and a mid-level resident trying to get some operative independence. Maybe you could talk about what the operative training is like and the case volumes and degree of independence that your residents get in that setting. Well, you bet. Uh, you know, the thing about trauma is that it uh, attracts a wide variety of patients, and we're also a uh, designated stroke center. We are an NCI designated cancer center. Um, so there are a lot of things that go along with being uh, the only neurosurgery training program around uh, that are not just trauma-related. That's kind of one part I would say about it. Uh, we're also the only freestanding children's hospital in the state of Oklahoma. So in addition to adult trauma, we get uh, pediatric trauma, but also the, the wide variety of pediatric neurosurgery cases. Um, so there, there is a, what you might call a halo effect uh, that generates from these different centers here on the campus that give us a huge variety. And again, not just in trauma, but in, in all aspects of neurosurgery. Uh, as far as volume goes, trauma contributes to our volume. It's not the main driver of it. And it does generate uh, busy calls, but um, not every single call is like that, I would say. And also the, the pathology we see is wide ranging. We see an unbelievable number of brain tumors and not just complex spinal trauma and cranial trauma, but also complex spinal pathology. Um, we see a, a large amount of vascular pathology, both here and at one of our satellite facilities. And what this means is as a trainee, you have ample opportunity um, for getting in more cases. 
The vast majority of the cases I do are with one resident. Sometimes I'm in there by myself without a resident for a little while. Sometimes I do the case without a resident because we just don't, we have more cases often than can be covered by the resident staff. So it breeds a culture of early and often operative experience, uh, but also what we think is an excellent experience in that we we are certainly not overserved with the number of residents we have. And so, um, for example, our chief residents you know, can really sort of drive their education in different directions uh, while um, you know, maintaining competence in all parts of neurosurgery, but also uh, allowing their subspecialty interests to, to come out as you as they mature and as they uh, make decisions about their, their case coverage. Yeah, and as an applicant evaluating programs, if you're really dedicated to serious surgical training, I'd, I'd say that that's the case volume to resident ratio that you want to see, right? That's uh, correct. So maybe as you were touching there on the chief residents, uh, you know, finding their own subspecialty interests and starting to branch out. I, I'm sure that as the students and applicants interview with you, they'll have presentations, you'll go through the yearly rotations and everything, but maybe in a, in a broad sense, give us, a, give us an idea of what the residency looks like for the residents. What's the, the shape of the residency, if you will? How much freedom do they have to pursue subspecialty interests during their training? So the, the program starts out uh, with kind of an early clinical skills, if you will, section of the intern year. Uh, we decide what goes in that, like most programs, and we add and subtract uh, any rotations that we like or ones that we think maybe we could make a little bit better. Uh, we do have some exposure to neurosurgery and neurology, critical care during the intern year. And then really kind of the scope of it is an advance, advancing um, responsibility and operative um, uh, technique and certainly um, more more patient care responsibility as a leader as time goes on. Uh, our junior residency is it probably looks a lot like other people's. Uh, one of the things that we do different here is that we have a a uh, almost expanded pediatric focus. So we we do more months I think in pediatrics than most people do. Uh, I'm an adult spine surgeon, but honestly I found that extremely valuable and have used that throughout my career. Um, as far as self-directing, um, we have most every specialty represented in one way or another. And we do have a formal mentoring program, but honestly, residents tend to gravitate towards somebody in their field of interest or, you know, someone like a like-minded person who then draws them into their field of interest. And uh, our residents have had very, very good success in pursuing uh, often the fellowships of their first choice and uh, finding their way into whatever their subspecialty and where their heart lies. And I think that's the strength of Oklahoma is that we, we generate people who can do really anything they want in neurosurgery. We feel like we do a good job of getting them to a place they want to be uh, in a subspecialty if they choose to do that. The majority of our recent graduates have done fellowships, but we certainly are perfectly um, happy with residents who graduate and say, hey, I want to return to hometown of X and I want to do general neurosurgery, they're, they're absolutely qualified for something like that. Absolutely. And, you know, we were chatting before we started recording about Oklahoma City itself, what it has to offer and some of the uh, attractions and sights, sounds and smells of the city. Maybe you could talk briefly about the kinds of things the residents like to do in their off time and what in your eyes are some of the perks of living in Oklahoma City? Well, I think the 
the first thing about Oklahoma City is that it is a, a large and growing city. I believe it's the 22nd largest city in the United States right now, but it certainly doesn't have that kind of feel to it. Um, most of the, the fun activities in town are, are certainly accessible to uh, really to everyone, including residents. Um, the cost of living is very low. Residents, um, you know, if you're going to be here for seven years, uh, many residents uh, buy a home. Uh, even with, with the real estate market doing what it's doing, it's, it's generally still a very affordable place to live. Um, there's a lot of options as far as where you can live. And um, Oklahoma City has, a, has quite a bit going on in terms of the, the restaurant scene, the entertainment available. Um, we, and not just the, the, the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, but um, we also have a, a, a minor league soccer team. Uh, we have a um, AAA baseball affiliate of the Dodgers. Um, and then we're, we're only about 20 miles away from Norman, where the University of Oklahoma main campus is located. And uh, of course, during football season, that's the place to be. Um, the, uh, the thing about Oklahoma City, as far as the downtown, which as I'm in my office, I'm, I'm looking right at it. The downtown Oklahoma City area is really a story of truly successful urban renewal. And it has uh, become a cultural hub for the city and the region. Uh, the restaurant scene, as I said, has exploded to the to the point where uh, really you just kind of can't keep up with everything that's available. And um, again, cost is such most of the time in Oklahoma City that it's really accessible to to residents and uh, something that they enjoy doing is getting out and getting around the city, uh, checking out the art scene, checking out the music scene. Um, and hopefully as things normalize, as, as COVID ideally winds down, there's a whole lot more of that. Excellent. Well, Dr. Martin, we want to thank you for uh, giving us your time to come on the show today and give this little insight into the program for all the applicants coming uh, coming down the trail this year. Thanks for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Well, thank you, JP. I appreciate the opportunity to do this. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lipsman. Dr. Lipsman is the program director at a stored institution, which is University of Toronto. Dr. Lipson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Great to speak to you. So, you know, we are highlighting Canadian programs as well as American programs. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and what it's like to be at University of Toronto? Sure. So uh, thanks again for having me. So my name is Neil Lipsman. I'm the Neurosurgery Residency Program Director at the University of Toronto and have been now for the last year. So uh, the University of Toronto... Uh, as you mentioned, is uh, one of the oldest neurosurgery programs in, in North America. We were actually established in, in 1923. We're coming up to our 100th year. Uh, it's made up of uh, 35 residents as well as 24 active staff uh, across four teaching sites, including three adult and, and one pediatric site, which is the Hospital for Sick Children. Our chair, our current chair, is Dr. Gallery Zadeh, uh, who you may know is the president of the Society for Neuro-Oncology currently. Uh, and um, we pride ourselves on a program uh, that is excellent training program, but also is uh, incredibly academic and uh, just a great uh, track record of faculty and staff, uh, as well as residents doing uh, outstanding uh, academic work as well. That's great. And, and we know so many friends from Toronto, like Michael Failings and Jim Rutka and, and the late Alan Hudson. And it's really a fantastic place with a tremendous history. Um, tell us a little about how it's like to be in, in the Canadian match system. I understand there's a different system than the American system, but you do take American applicants, correct? 
We do, uh, and we welcome American applicants, absolutely, and we've uh, interviewed and uh, and have welcomed Americans uh, in the past. So our match system is known as uh, CARMS, which is the Canadian uh, rank matching system uh, that we have uh, in Canada. And of course, with the pandemic, a lot of the deadlines and a lot of the timelines have shifted in the last uh, two cycles. Um, essentially, uh, the process begins with applications around now, around November, uh, December time due in January, and then the applications are reviewed and applicants are invited for interviews uh, in February with, with, a, with a match a process that's in the, in the early in the early spring. Uh, in the past, the timelines with the American system and the American match system has has lined up. Uh, and we've been able to uh, welcome again American applicants to interview and participate in our match. During the pandemic, of course, everything has been uh, a little bit haywire uh, and the timelines have not matched uh, very well, such that American applicants who apply had to kind of declare themselves for the Canadian match before knowing uh, how they stand in the U.S. So as a result, in the last couple of years, we have not had as many American applicants for that reason. But uh, we do anticipate as, as the timelines go back to normal uh, in the next few cycles, uh, we'll be able to open things up more widely. And are the requirements any different? Like USMLE is what we have here, right? Stages one, two, and three. What are the requirements uh, in Canada? And do you accept the American uh, testing process? Yeah, so the USMLE is not required uh, for the Canadian match. Uh, we look at uh, the medical school transcripts. We look at uh, reference letters. Uh, we look at uh, the interview process, of course. Uh, and that's how we determine who is invited for an interview. Uh, typically, most applicants do electives at one of the teaching sites at the University of Toronto, again, a three adult or, or one pediatric site. Uh, of course, now with COVID, uh, we have not had uh, elective students from outside the University of Toronto for the last two years. We just heard actually that next year will be the same. We will not be able to host electives uh, and hope that uh, that will change, uh, of course, after that, because that's the best opportunity to meet uh, applicants outside of our university. Uh, but those are the main ways to get in touch. We do have a fairly robust virtual uh, uh, presence, uh, whether on social media, and also we host uh, really a, a myriad virtual programs, whether it's neurosurgery information nights or open houses or resident AMAs or, or all these kinds of sessions that we advertise through all our social media channels. So we try to get out there and we very much encourage applicants if they're if they're interested in neurosurgery, if they're interested in academic neurosurgery and in Toronto to reach out. We have a fully open door policy to myself and Dr. Zade and any of the education site directors or residents in our program who can really speak to the strengths of uh, the University of Toronto. Yeah, and, and I will highlight that you guys, with all due respect to the other Canadian programs, which I love, is that you're, you're sort of the flagship of your country, right? And so... I'm not going to have you walk through all the, the storied faculty and the rotations and all that to spare you that, because I think we can recognize that University of Toronto in many ways represents the biggest uh, and most complete program in Canada. And you get applicants from all over the British Commonwealth. I know Australians that have gone there, Englishmen and women. Uh, so, so I'm not going to get into that, but it is a seven-year program, right? It's, uh, it's a six-year program currently, uh, actually, and uh, so essentially the first uh, three years are junior and intermediate years. Our fourth year is a research year, typically, and residents have, have uh, most residents have decided to enter 
the University of Toronto's Surgeon Scientist Training Program, or SSTP, in their fourth year and pursue an advanced research degree, either a master's or a PhD, whether in Toronto or, or elsewhere, and we've supported that as well. The, the SSTP is really one of the uh, crown jewels in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto. It protects salary during research uh, during that research period that allows residents to really take part in, in research as much as possible. And then residents come back for the last two years of their senior and chief residency, uh, and at which point they write their, their Royal College exam and, and, and pursue fellowships uh, after that. So it is a six-year program, um, and... and, and Thanks for your comments with regards to our program. We do consider ourselves, uh, you know, uh, up there uh, with some of the top tier programs uh, around the world. Uh, and as a result, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, you know, we, we are able to attract uh, really the top top tier kind of applicants, both to our residency program and our, our fellowship programs across uh, really the, every single uh, surgical neurosurgical subdiscipline. Yes. Yeah, so, so let's talk about the back end of this. So, you know, here in Miami, uh, our chair, Alan Levy, uh, was from University of Toronto. He trained there. And in his time, I believe that Canadians could become grandfathered in to our American board process. And so when you finish in Canada, you become a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, FRCS, with the, with the parentheses a C for Canada, right, as opposed to England, Correct. Australia or South Africa, Correct. right? Um, how does one then negotiate this afterwards? Let's say you're an American applicant, just because there's more Americans than Canadians. You finish your training in Canada, and then you want to come back home to America to practice neurosurgery. And I do know the Canadian route, which is lots of your uh, graduates have come through Miami, and then now they practice if they've done one year fellowship, but they never become board certified in America, at least not today. So tell me, walk me through how it would look if you were, let's say, an American applicant, and I apologize for that bias, train in Canada and then come back to the U.S.? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and board eligibility is something that we're actively uh, continuing to pursue, something we're strongly interested in. As mentioned, we believe our, our program is sort of on par or, or you know, with any you know, uh, American or North American program. And as such, fully believe and hope uh, that with time, our, 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 our applicants are Graduates will be will be eligible to sit the board of the exam. It's really uh, after 1997, uh, approximately, that our residents, our graduating residents, were no longer considered board eligible. Uh, and this, uh, since then, has been uh, something that our, our leadership at the University of Toronto has actively taken up uh, in in trying to trying to change. That said, uh, many of our applicants uh, uh, end up uh, getting excellent uh, jobs in the United States, uh, really, really outstanding programs. And, um, and usually they get sort of hospital or state-specific uh, licenses, which allows them to practice at the particular hospital that they are, that they are hired at. And, uh, and that, that process is renewed every, you know, if they, for example, want to change uh, or go to a different site. So it is definitely possible. Uh, and the broader picture of, of board eligibility is something that we hope uh, will uh, will change uh, in the coming years. We're actively uh, trying to, uh, to trying to change that and work with our American colleagues to try to reflect that. That's great. That's that's good news. So maybe by wrapping up, tell us what it's like to live in a city like Toronto and be in a city city where you know it's it's a world class city like New York City, right? Tell us what no it's question, like yeah. to to live there. For sure. And, you know, the first thing I'll say is that, I mean, Toronto is one of the most livable cities on the planet. 
you know, it's, it's the diversity, culture, sports, and food capital of Canada, certainly, and I would argue, you know, in North America. Uh, so anything that uh, anything that you like, whether it's you know outdoor activities or or really um, really cultural activities, you know it's all represented at, at, at our city, which we're fortunate to live in. Um, I would say that the strength of our program is our residents. There's no question. I mean, we have uh, about three dozen residents that are really the the, the the crown jewel for us. You know, they represent every province, medical school, undergraduate degree, and background. Uh, and, and really an outstanding group uh, group of people, and um, really fortunate to work uh, to work along them. But uh, but Toronto is a great place to live. Um, whether you enjoy you know again sports or or or, or food or, or or any kind of activities, you know this is the place to be. And and as a result, uh, the diversity in the city is huge. So we have people from 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 all over the world. Uh, both in our hospitals and in our city, and uh, just a great place, uh, safe place, and really a outstanding place to live. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts, and good luck in the match this year. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, we are joined by David Daniels. David is a pediatric neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic Rochester. He's the program director at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. I'm very happy to be here today. Great. We've been trying to interview all the program directors, as you know, and um, why don't you begin by telling us a little about how you got started in neurosurgery and how you became program director at such a storied institution? Sure. Thanks. Um, I got interested in neurosurgery when I was doing my research um, during the PhD time. I was essentially putting catheters into mice brain and delivering opiate uh, drugs to them. And I thought, well, if I could do these in animals, why not in humans? So that's what got me interested in neurosurgery. I started neurosurgery residency at Mayo Clinic. And so I did our program and then ultimately joined a staff. And so I can tell you that I was very invested into our program. And that's one of the main driving forces. I want to keep the program the same. I like our historical roots. And that's what really drove me to be program director. You know, Dr. Daniels, Mayo is one of those institutions. There's a handful of them that tends to have a lot of people who are lifers like that, who come to Mayo, stay at Mayo, who really love it because of what they find there what they find reflected in the culture and the environment and, uh, and the working atmosphere. So maybe as someone who, as you said, liked Mayo, stayed at Mayo, share with our listeners, what, what is that culture? What is that sense of belonging that you find there that, that led you to stay? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and it's a good observation that you see that. So um, one of the things that you see early on is the, the, the mantra that is always talked about as one of the main values, which is the needs of the patient come first. And I can say that everything that we do is patient centric. And, and that comes from not only the, you know, the surgeons, the doctors, but we're talking the, the people that drive the buses that are getting the doctors between the campuses even. They take pride in what they do and take pride in the fact that they're helping patients. And it's really that patient centricness um, that drives Mayo Clinic. And that's what really it's a uh, you know, way to say I'm going to be an excellent you know, surgeon, an excellent doctor, an excellent provider. And I can say that everybody who stays buys into that. It's not for everybody. And those are the people that leave if, if, they, if they don't like that. But I can say that that's the thing that drove me to, to really want to stay there is really just excellent patient care. So, you know, prior to starting this recording, you were telling me a little bit about the structure of the program. I thought it was really interesting because I trained at USC where the chief resident is truly independent. Um, tell us a little bit about how your program might differ from other programs in the U.S., 
Yeah, good, good question, Mike. And I, we're actually in the process of uh, writing this up as a, as an educational journal article. We have what's called the mentorship model, and this was started a long time ago, um, back in the days where Thor Sunt uh, was was our chair. Was kind of an apprenticeship style where uh, residents spend specific two or three month period of time with each individual staff. Um, and so they don't bounce onto quote unquote, like a cranial service or a spinal service. Uh, they spend time um, with one or two staff uh, for an extended period of time. So that staff gets to know them and that resident gets to know what that staff is doing. This culminates in our chief year where our chiefs are very independent. Our chiefs have their own operating room. Um, they have uh, a nursing staff, mid-level providers, um, and, uh, and a whole OR team. So they see patients independently in clinic, um, sign them up for surgery. They do run the cases by staff and staff are ultimately available if needed. Uh, but, the but the cases are really run by the chief residents. And so this kind of gets at that, you know, when you're done with training, do you feel independent that you can go walk out of training uh, and feel comfortable doing this on your own? And so it's kind of baby steps towards that direction where our chief residents get that autonomy and get that independent feeling. So they feel more comfortable when they finish residency. You know, there, there's so many conversations happening these days about residency overall structure and how to spend that PGY seven year now that the uh, last of the straggler programs, including my own home route rush, have finally fully transitioned to a full seven year residency. So I wonder, you know, having that transition of practice year and, and that fully independent year, as you describe it, um, must be a phenomenal experience for your residents as they're getting ready to transition out to being truly independent. How long have you had that program structure at Mayo? And do, do you recall or, or has there been discussion about what it's like for the residents compared to before you had that model? As far as I can tell, that model has always existed. And I don't know how far back that would go. So, uh, you know, people that still train in our program that are here, uh, like Fred Meyer, who's now, you know, in charge of the ABNS and and some of the older folks even that have, have retired. I mean, they speak of this model as when they trained here, that's how it was. So as far as I can tell, that's kind of been our historical roots. At the SNS meeting this year, it, it was one of the things that was discussed where uh, graduating residents may not feel as comfortable going into practice right away. And, and people brought up the idea of a six plus one model, trying to graduate people at six years with a mandatory seventh year that would be sort of uh, in, more independent. And I can say that as I was listening to these discussions, I was like, well, that's sort of what we're already doing in our environment. It's just the, the plus one year is at our home institution. Um, we have talked about trying to graduate the residents at six years and then doing that seventh year as a junior staff level required at you know our institution. However, when we looked into that, there's nothing to say that the, that that person wouldn't if we graduated them at six years, they couldn't go elsewhere. And so that was one of the hurdles. But then also the ABNS um, came down to that, as we just discussed, you know, the, the training programs need to be seven years. Um, so that kind of fell to the side. But that was something that we were looking in. At. David, I, I don't want to go into all the details due to the lack of time about how you have such great programs at Mayo and all the different subspecialties, and I'm sure the rotations are all totally awesome. But tell us a little bit about living in Rochester. And I remember when I interviewed back in 95 that I was going to meet a friend of mine from Stanford at the Mayo Clinic, and he ended up in Rochester, New York. And I, I think that happens more often than people might expect. What is it like to, to live there? Yep. 
so it's easy living. That's just what I'm going to set it up as. And especially as a resident, I think you want to sign up for easy living. Yesterday, uh, the I just had the Rochester, New York problem bite me. I was asked to give a talk in Turkey and uh, they set it up and they're like, it's going to be noon my time and uh, and noon uh, uh, Eastern time rolls around and they're like, where are you? And uh, and I'm like, well, it's uh, only 11 o'clock here. And it, it turns out that they had set things up for uh, Rochester, New York time, not Rochester, Minnesota time. But the answer to the question, it's um, it's easy living. I think um, one of our uh, one of our uh, senior residents was uh, giving a talk to to some of the visiting medical students, and he gave a story of uh, you know finishing work on a Friday night at like five thirty, and and he went and got a haircut. He went to the grocery store and got uh, dinner for you know the weekend. He went to the liquor store, and then he got home, and he said he did all of this within one hour. That includes driving to all those places, doing those things. So, if you spend more than you know five ten minutes driving, it's that's a rarity. So I can just say for residents, everything is very easy here. It's a small town, about 100,000 total, but we're near a major metropolitan area, which is the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. So you have things like the Mall of America. You got, you know, your major sports. Um, I have actually sporting tickets to, to, to uh, baseball, to, to hockey um, and get up there as I can, et cetera. So um, we really enjoy it. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Daniels, as we're wrapping up here, I, I feel like we have a great sense of the flavor of mayo, the flavor of Rochester. So I wonder if we could turn things around and, you know, you, you've described the culture of mayo, patients first, the Rochester easy living. What then is in your mind the ideal applicant? Who, who are you looking for to best fit into your team and your family there? Yeah, I think I, I think I summarize that as a, we're looking for people that just want to be excellent. And so I'm not looking for, you know, somebody who's going to be uh, an academic skull based surgeon or an academic uh, spine surgeon. We just want people that are going to come and work hard and want to be excellent at what they do. And so that's we have all the opportunities with two years of elective time where people can explore things. I want people to be driven internally um, to be able to utilize those resources to their maximum. I don't want to have to be pushing the people to go do that. So it's really just self-motivated people who want to be excellent at what they do. Those are the people that we're looking for. And I can say, uh, reading through applications and seeing visiting medical students, we certainly have a lot in the field. So it's, it's easy to choose from. Wonderful. Well, we hope this helps you find them and for them to find you. Um, so Dr. Daniels, thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast to uh, help spotlight the Mayo Mothership in Rochester, Minnesota. <laughs> thank you, John. And thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.